Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. I want to deal today with the issue of overcoming bitterness, beating bitterness. I'm going to read two passages of scripture. On the surface, they don't seem to connect, but they both hinge on a single word in Hebrew, and that word is meira, and it means bitter, but it means more than just bitter as in the slightly bitter taste you might get after drinking coffee. It means bitter at almost a toxic level, bitter as in poisonous. You could drink something bitter if you hold your nose and drink it, but it wouldn't really kill you. But the sense of bitter that is used in the word meira is a, is a level of toxicity that you can't tolerate it. Both of these passages of scripture depend on that, on that word. The first is from Exodus chapter 15. If you have your scriptures and you'll turn there, Exodus chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. Now, let me set the scene for you. The Hebrew people have been led triumphantly out of Egypt after 430 years in bondage. They have been miraculously delivered. They have looted Egypt. They have come out with the gold and the treasures of Egypt with them. They come to the Red Sea. God protects them with a wall of fire from the Egyptian army that's coming after them. Then God separates the Red Sea. They walk through dry shod. He closes the Red Sea after them and drowns the attacking Egyptian army. They have had miracle after miracle after miracle. And then they come to the desert, the wilderness of Shur on the other side of the, of the Red Sea. And there they are confronted with the issue of needing water in the wilderness and they come to these wells, to this pool of water, which is probably, given its uh, territory where it is, alkaline. And it's not possible for them to drink it without poisoning themselves. And they're angry and turn on Moses. These are people who have had miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And now they come to these waters that are bitter, and they're ready to rebel against Moses. Verse 22, Exodus 15. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shark. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink of the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Merah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made them a statute and an ordinance, and there he tested them. And he said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now turn to the book of Ruth, the first chapter, beginning with verse 19. And again, I want to give you the setting so that we're there. This again, the whole passage hangs on the word Merah. We call it the book of Ruth. It might logically also be called the book of Naomi, for the greater part of the book is about Naomi. Naomi is a woman who was married in Israel in the city of Bethlehem, in the little village of Bethlehem. She and her husband and two grown sons, 
there was a famine that came to Israel and they fled the famine and went to Moab across the Jordan River into the Moab country. And there as immigrants, they found success and prosperity. God blessed them. The only fly in the ointment for Naomi was that both of her sons married Moabite, Moabite women, Moabitess women, uh, Gentiles, in other words. She was not happy with these Gentile weddings, but she was happy and blessed and prosperous there in that foreign country, and so she accepted it. Now the famine that was in Israel catch up, catches up with them in Moab. It hits there, and they lose everything. Her husband dies. Then both of her sons die. And she is stuck with less than nothing, worse than nothing. She's now as broke and as impoverished as she was in Bethlehem. All that she had fled has caught up with her. And she's got worse than nothing. She's got these two Gentile daughter-in-laws, and she doesn't want either one of them. So she says to them, look, according to Hebrew law, you should wait until I can remarry, have another child. If it's a boy, that boy grows up. He's old enough to marry the older of the two daughters-in-law. Then I have another child. That boy grows up, if it's a boy, and he marries. She says, but the arithmetic is against us. There's no way that can happen. I'm too old to have another child, and by the time he was grown, you'd be too old. So I release you both from the law. Go back to your people. The one daughter leaves. The other daughter, this daughter Ruth, has seen something in this family that she's not ready to let go of. And she says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, this famous speech, whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. I'm always a little bit amused in weddings when I, modern weddings, when they have the bridegroom and the bride say that to each other. <laughs> That's not the way to do it. Have the bride say it to her mother-in-law. That, that changes everything. And so Naomi comes back to Bethlehem and returns to Bethlehem with this daughter-in-law. She's broke. She's a widow. Both of her grown sons that would have the responsibility to care for her in her old age, she has nothing, no social security, no nothing. And worse than that, she's got this Gentile daughter-in-law stuck to the bottom of her shoe like bubble gum. And so she comes into Bethlehem and... There the people rush out to her. It's kind of a, a, of a rhetorical question. If you haven't seen anybody in a long time, if I saw Marvin, say, hey, Marvin, is that you? Is that you, Marvin? Well, of course it's Marvin. I know it is. But they come out to her, Naomi, is that you? Is that you? And she makes a play on her own name. Naomi in Hebrew means full. Not full as if and I just ate, but full of blessings, like a basket that's full of fruit. And they say, Naomi, is that you? She says, she makes a play on her name. No, when I left here, I was Naomi. Now, she says, I'm Merah. I left full of blessings. I've come home a bitter old woman. And that's where we find this passage, beginning with verse 19, Ruth chapter 1. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? And she said unto them, no, call me not Naomi, call me Merah, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth 
the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Today we're going to deal with the second of Satan's one-two punch knockout combination. First is unforgiveness, but the second is a body punch. That is bitterness. Why do we use the term body punch? A body punch, I did, I did some research on this, and the reason a body punch works is that if it is placed strategically, it hits the nerve that runs through that area. There are multiple places where a body punch can bring you down, but but we think about a knockout as a knockout that comes to a headshot that knocks you unconscious. But the thing about a body punch is it knocks you out. You can't fight. The fight is over, but you're not unconscious. At least if somebody knocks you cold, you're unconscious, but you don't have to hear the crowd cheering. With a body punch, it drops you to the canvas. You can't fight anymore, but you know you're awake. You have to watch that other guy dancing around the ring in the crowd cheering. You're awake enough to know that you've been knocked out. There are two major areas where a body punch really works. The first, of course, is a solar plexus because right there it hits what is called the phrenic nerve, and that sends the signal to your brain not to breathe. We say it knocked the breath out of us, but it didn't really knock the breath out of you. It simply sends a signal, a nerve signal to your body that you're not supposed to breathe. And so gasping for breath and unable to breathe, you drop to the canvas. Now, it's easier to defend because the punch that's coming to your solar plexus comes straight at you. And so it's easier to defend against that body punch. The more lethal one is the one that hits your liver. Right here on your lower right ribs is where your liver is. And there is a nerve called the vagus nerve. And when that vagus nerve is hit hard enough, it sends a signal through your entire nervous system for all the systems of the body to simply shut down. You get weary. You feel like you're collapsing. You can't fight. You can't run. You just simply shut down. You close down. In preparation for this series on boxing, I did a lot of research on it. I've been fascinated with boxing all my life. I know it's a brutal sport. I know, I know, I know. I watch it all alone. Uh, but um, but I, I just want to say to you, I'm fascinated with boxing. I don't want to take part in it. I just want to watch it. But uh, But I found in preparation for this, that there was a young fighter that I have become very interested in. I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I'm going to tell you, if you want to write this name down, you mark my words. You will hear from a young Mexican fighter, Tex he's actually from Texas, he's a uh, uh, Mexican-American, named Omar Figueroa. He is a tremendous fighter. Four, he's undefeated, 22 years old. Four of his last five bouts Omar Figueroa scored a knockout in the first round. In preparation for this very sermon, I heard that he was an expert, and it is, it is by the way, a specialty of the uh, school of Mexican boxers, is body punching. They have, made a, they have made a specialty of it. And I heard that Omar Figueroa was a great body puncher, so I watched his last fight on Showtime. And... He knocked his opponent out, though he never went unconscious. He scored a TKO, a technical knockout, in two minutes and 27 seconds of the first round, and he never hit him in the head. 
He only hit him in the body twice in the liver and dropped him. The What it sends is a signal that your whole body is shutting down. I believe that the body punch of Satan that follows the headshot of unforgiveness is the body punch of bitterness. It is a left cross that comes in underneath. So the boxer is waiting, the, your opponent is waiting for you to throw a right, and that exposes this side. And then a left cross comes straight in right on your liver. Satan is a roaring lion. He is just waiting for that moment of opportunity to hit you with bitterness, and it becomes a debilitating wound. Now, I want to talk about three ways that bitterness comes into lives. The first is circumstantial. That is, it's circumstantial. Things happen that cause people, to a certain extent, to be bitter. Edith Schaefer, in her beautiful book, powerful book called Affliction, she says that all affliction is either too much of something or too little of something. Look at the Hebrews. When they came to the, to the Red Sea, there was too much water. When they came to the desert, there was too little water. When they came to the wells at Merah, there was too much bitterness. There's always too much or too little of something. So the woman who is single, moving on in life in single, she says, I'm afflicted because I have no husband. Until she talks to the woman whose husband is violent. Then she says, there's such a thing as too much husband. <laughs> the lady who is barren has no children. She feels afflicted because she has no children. But what about the old woman that lives in the shoe? She says there's such a thing as too much of a good thing. There is the man who cannot find a job feels afflicted because he has no job. But the chief executive officer of five different companies who is under tremendous stress all the time, he will say, I have too much of a job. Life can come with all kinds of hits. Life can hit us hard. I don't want to make light in any way. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I don't want anything in this teaching today to sound to you like I'm making light of the situation or circumstance that you're going through. I talked to a lady right before the first service. She's facing a terrible situation in her life. And, and my heart goes out to her. I don't want anything I say today to sound like I'm not taking that seriously. But here's the question that I would ask. Why can two people seem to take exactly the same blow? and one of them becomes bitter. Naomi said, I have no sons. I have no husband. I have no money, and I've become bitter. I'm not full anymore. I have nothing. I have worse than nothing. She has become circumstantially bitter. The second is disp dispositionally Part of your disposition. There are people, I believe, that are, have trace elements of bitter, bitterness, even when they are very young. And as they grow older, it simply becomes more manifest. Not too long ago, some of the students where I used to be the president came to me and they were complaining about one of their female teachers. They said, that is the most sourpussed old woman. They said, Dr. Owen, why is she like that? She comes into class and the first thing she says is, everybody sit down. Say, why? What happened to her? How did she become such a sourpuss in her old age? I said, you're wrong. She did not become a sourpuss in her old age. She was sourpuss when she was your age. 
She just got more push sour the older she got. You can hide bitterness with makeup for a long time. But finally, it will show forth. The, sign, the signs of inward bitterness as it washes out on others are constant cynicism, harshness, pessimistic view of life, causticness, a dispensational bitterness that just sees everything negatively and everything focused on you. So the first is circumstantial bitterness. The second is dispositional bitterness. The third is habitual bitterness. I believe that there are people who are bitter simply because they have allowed themselves to be. They are emotionally self-indulgent, and they pour it out on others. That's the reason that I call it a body shot, because it affects the body of Christ. It affects its social bitterness. Have you ever known people that when they come in the room, you feel like six people left? That, that is, that is what happens with bitterness. It can wash over a congregation. You saw it in the story of Moses, that the murmurers affected the whole group. Naomi doesn't just feel bitter, she pours it out on her fellow citizens in Bethlehem. She says, I left here full of blessings. She has forgotten. She did not leave full of blessings. She left to flee a famine, and those people that she's talking to stayed and saw it through. She was not full of blessings when she left, but she sees her life now totally negatively. I had everything. Now I've got nothing. So there is circumstantial bitterness, dispositional bitterness, and habitual bitterness. Now... How do we defeat this second of the Satan's one-two punches? In many ways, the issue here is defense. You can counterpunch a headshot. If you've got, if you've got a strong enough jaw, well, that made me dizzy. If you've got a, if you've got a strong enough chin, then you can take a shot on your chin and then beat that guy with a counterpunch. But you don't want to counterpunch body shots. That's the reason you have to keep your elbows in. You have to be in a defensive posture against body shots, even if you can counterpunch against shots to your jaw. So what is the great defense against Satan's body shot of bitterness? The first is this, to practice praise for what you do have, rather than concentrating on what you don't have. Naomi had lost track. Naomi had lost track of what she had. Why couldn't she say, yes, we've had a difficult time in Moab, but let me show you something. I've got this beautiful little daughter-in-law who left her family, who left her country, who left her culture, and she loves me and cares for me, and she's devoted to me, and she's accepted my religion, and she wants to be among us. I want everybody to meet Ruth, my lovely little daughter-in-law. Instead, she says, I'm bitter. I'm just bitter. I don't have anything. What's your name, kid? Sit down. If we can begin to practice concentrating on what we have rather than what we don't have. Self-pity is a bottomless pit. There's, there's no, there's no way to fill it. You can't pour enough good things in to overcome self-pity. In one of the churches that Allison and I pastored, there was a lady who was a widow, and I, I don't want to make light of her widowhood. No one, no one wants to do that. 
But her husband had left her very wealthy. He was a wealthy man. He left his wealth and he was heavily insured. She had a gorgeous home, several thousands of square feet. She had a huge life insurance policy that came to her. She drove a gorgeous uh, luxury car and she was the bitterest woman. She poured that bitterness on our church. She constantly reminded everybody of how she had lost her husband. She was the most bitter woman that I've ever known because she could not see all the things that she had. Now, I want you to file that woman. I'm coming back to her in a moment, but I want you to put that woman in a mental file and just hold her to a little bit further on. The second discipline is to discipline your mind to speak with faith and joy. If the joy of the Lord is our strength, and Scripture says it is, then we need to actually cause ourselves to speak joy by faith. Now, listen to me just a minute. I know that there has been some excessive and sometimes erroneous teaching on confessional faith. Just confess it and possess it. A lot of times it led to some goofy excesses. People were confessing each other's Cadillacs. Lord, I confess that I have his car and he has nothing. So I know there's been some goofy stuff taught and said and that kind of thing. But listen to me confessing God's victorious power over my circumstances is an important discipline. God can handle this. God will deal with this, that I have joy in the face of this. I am an overcomer. I'm a more than a conqueror. If to discipline yourself to speak that which you want. If you want joy, speak joy. If you want a confident view of life, then speak God's conquering power. The discipline of your mind and your tongue. Instead, we defend ourselves by blaming God. Listen to Naomi. She takes the whole thing to a very negative place. That at the wells of Merah, the Hebrew people blame Moses. They attack Moses. It says they murmured against Moses. When I teach at the National Institute of Christian Leadership, one of the things I always tell pastors is, remember, in your church, there are people that are angry at God. They're deeply angry at God. They would like to punch God's lights out. They would like to just hit God right in the face. But they can't find God. But they know where you live. You stand up in the pulpit and say, the Lord has sent me here. I work for God. Somebody in the back will yell, get a rope. But Naomi takes it to the next level. The people and the Hebrew people blame Moses. Naomi blames God multiple times. I went out full. God has afflicted me. God has taken everything I had. God has sent me home empty. God has done this to me. She's blaming God. By praising God and speaking joy and faith and confidence into existence, we defend ourselves against the body blow of fastening blame for my circumstances on God. The third is this. Understand that you may not be able to see what God is working out. You may not be able to understand the long-range plan of the hardship that you're enduring. Many years ago, Allison and I went to pastor a church, and we took over a church that was in terrible trouble. It was bankrupt in, in every way, financially and, and emotionally, and it was, it was a miraculous turnaround. In the years that we were there, God turned that situation around. It was a miracle. But I learned something. You can get a miracle that will just near about kill you. It was a difficult time. 
And reflecting on it, years later, we were at Thanksgiving dinner. Our children were all there, our children-in-law, our grandchildren. And I was reflecting on it, and I began to feel a little bit guilty. And I said to everybody at the Thanksgiving meal, I said, guys, I I want you to listen to Daddy for a minute. I may have made a mistake in going to that church. I thought I was hearing from the Lord. Allison and I both thought we were. But I I may have made a mistake in going there in any way that, that you got damaged in that. I, I want to apologize to you if I made a mistake. And our son, Travis, who's now a wonderful preacher, he said, Daddy, I want to ask you a question. Why do you have to be the focus of every story? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, why does all that have to be about you? He said, if we hadn't gone to that church, I wouldn't have met this beautiful little brown-eyed wife of mine. He said, I wouldn't have these three perfect boys that you think are sinless and perfect and that you're spoiling rotten. I wouldn't have them. He said, if we hadn't gone to that church, I wouldn't have Courtney. I wouldn't have these boys. He said, has it ever occurred to you that God did not send you to that church for anything about you, that God sent us to that church for me? I can't speak for you, but I just want to say something here. I find it extraordinarily irritating when God speaks through members of my family. (laughs) Naomi could only see she was so fastened on that moment, her widowhood, her deceased sons, her poverty, that moment, what she couldn't see that was through, through Ruth marrying Boaz, that their son was going to be named Obed, that their son was going to be named Jesse, and that his son was going to be David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. She certainly couldn't see to the time where the genealogy of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, would have in it only the names of two women, and one of those would be this Gentile daughter-in-law. She did not arrive what she thought was she had arrived at Bethlehem at the end, and Scripture says she had arrived at the beginning. Ruth, Bethlehem means house of bread. Ruth was the little oven in which God was about to bake the bread of life. She didn't have nothing. She had everything. The fourth is this, the most important of all, the fourth way to defeat Satan's body punch of bitterness. When the people begin to murmur against Moses, Moses went to the Lord and said, God, you've got to help me. These people are going to kill me. And it says God showed him a tree, which when he plunged that tree into the waters of bitterness, they became sweet. In other words, they were healed. What a beautiful picture of the cross. That when the cross is plunged into our bitterest moment, that there is a flow of healing power. God doesn't want his children to live in bitterness, constantly murmuring, complaining, everything's bad. This is not going to turn out right. That's going to go wrong. Okay, well, we may be happy and rich right now, but God knows we'll be poor tomorrow. (laughs) We may be poor now, but we were born to be poor. We're going to die poor. (laughs) Probably you will. But God wants us to be able to embrace the cross in that bitterest, in the bitterest of moments. And he wants us to become sweeter Christians. I believe this with all my life. We're we're to be sweeter. One of my heroes, 
gone to be with the Lord now, Uncle Buddy Robinson. He was an eccentric and and uh, unusual great holiness evangelist. He was as good as gold, anointed with the power of God, and just as ignorant as a plate. He, he was just a country boy that God lifted up and made a great preacher. Uh, later on in life, he said he began to pray, God, I, I just feel like I'm not sweet enough. God, make me sweeter. He said it became his, his multiple times a day prayer for months and months. God, make me sweeter. Make me sweeter. Make me sweeter. Near the end of his life, he went for his doctor's appointment, and the doctor came out and said, Buddy, I, I have bad news for you. He said, Buddy, you've got diabetes. <laughs> Buddy Robinson, he didn't know anything. He said, Doctor, I don't even, I don't know what that means. What is diabetes? He said, the doctor said, well, buddy, I, I, let me put it in layman's terms. I guess what it means is that you've got sugar in your blood. He said, praise God. He said, I've been praying, Lord, make me sweeter. Now I got sugar in my blood. Do you remember I told you to file the picture of that woman? That widow in my church was so angry, angry with God, and poured her bitterness out on us Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I used to dread to see her come up the steps of church. How are you doing, Margaret? Horrible. Horrible. Can't sleep. Miserable. Drove to church today in my brand new car, and I'm miserable. But I, I want to tell you that her sister, Ethel, also attended our church. And Miss Ethel was also a widow. They were both widows, sisters. But her husband had been a working class bloke that didn't prepare for his death. He left her nothing but debts, no insurance policy. She spent years paying the debts off, and now she had nothing. They had no children, had no one to take care of her, and she lived all alone in a public housing unit. I used to go visit Miss Ethel in the daytime. <laughs> She brightened my day. She was one of the most joyful, happy, wonderful people. She had nothing. A widow, impoverished. She had arthritis in her little fingers so bad that her hands were twisted up like that. But when I would go see her, she brightened my whole day. When I got discouraged, I would just go see her. One day I went down to see her and, and she didn't answer the door, uh, apartment door and it was a little apron. She called it a porch because she saw everything big and good. It wasn't a porch. It was a little tiny concrete apron off the back door of her little crummy apartment. I went around the building and I could see her down there. And she was sitting on that little concrete apron with a big pan on her lap and she was popping beans. And I could see her wince with every bean that she broke. But she was singing, count your blessings, name them one by one. I was watching her, and I was thinking, what, what could be her blessings? How, how, how high could she count? She hadn't got anything. So finally she saw me. She said, oh, Pastor Mark, you're here. Come here and let me tell you the wonderful news. I said, Miss Ethel, what are you praising the Lord about? She said, the lady next door has just had a baby, and I'm just praising God. I had a little extra money to buy some food, and I'm cooking her supper, and I've got the strength to do it and the money to pay for it, and I'm thanking God. Both widows, 
Both widows, both sisters, both raised in the same family. One with so much and one with nothing and one living in the sweetness of overcoming power and the other in the defeat of bitterness. You know, uh, do you remember these old hymns? Listen to the joy of these old hymns. Praise Him, praise Him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. Here's another one. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. They're up songs. To God be the glory. They just make you want to get up and do a Jericho march. But who wrote those? Who wrote those? A little blind girl named Fanny Crosby. She wasn't born blind. She could see until she was six years old. She got an infection in her eyes, and some stupid doctor put a mustard plaster on her eyes to heal her of the infection and blinded her. She grew up blind. She got married, and her husband was blind. They had a little baby, and while that baby was in the crib, it died of SIDS. Now imagine this. Blind, blinded by a medical mishap, married to a blind man, with a dead baby, her only child, dead before reached the age of two. If there was anybody in the world that seemed to me to be able to, to be bitter, it seemed to me it might be that girl. But instead, Fanny Crosby said, there is a cross. Listen to this. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, the healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. And Fanny Crosby said, look, I take the cross and plunge it into the bitter waters of my physical affliction, and it heals me. I become a healing presence. I take the cross and plunge it into the bitter waters of my failed marriage. I take the cross and plunge it into the bitter waters of my financial distress. I take the cross and plunge it into whatever I'm facing, and I become not simply a winner, not just a winner, but more than a conqueror, more than a conqueror. Through Christ who loves me, the cross is not simply about the forgiveness of my sins, though that is wonderful. The cross is about the healing of my total life. Let Satan come. Let the lion roar. Let him punch. I am protected with praise. I am surrounded by the glory of God's presence. And at the end of everything, I'm healed by the cross. I'm healed by the cross. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.